Welcome back to On the Mic with Mike Peters. My guest this week is Ithaca comedian Kenneth McLaurin. I've known Kenneth almost the entire time I've been doing comedy. He's really funny. He started in North Carolina, and he works all over New York. And the dude is always smiling, which is a talent and also a little annoying. I, I never know what he's up to, but uh, frankly, I don't want to know. So we're good. We recorded this way back in August or maybe September, and I kept moving it because people had something to promote, and I just can't leave anything alone. So uh, I've been recording all during the pandemic, so the waiting list is getting pretty long. And if it's any consolation to anybody who's recorded with me, I feel like an asshole every week, regardless of what episode comes out. So we cool? All right. I'll take that as a yes. If you like Kenneth McLaurin, and I know you will, you can see him headline the On The Zoom Comedy Show at 8 p.m. on Saturday, February 13th. Sarah Cartwright from Pottsville, Pennsylvania, and Madeline Smith from New York City will be there, too. Tickets are just 5 bucks, so get them on Facebook or join the Patreon, and you can get every show for $5 a month. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to the podcast. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburned skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I hope they let me in I appreciate you doing this. No problem. What did I tear you away from doing? Uh, actually, you tore me away from a meeting with my boss. Is that good or bad? Uh, good for me, bad for him. <laughs> Are you working from home, like, routinely now? Yeah. Do you like that or no? Yes, I like working from home. Like, if I'm going to be sitting or standing in front of a computer, I'm fine with the computer in front of my house. Like, uh, the office was cool because I like hanging around people, talking to folks, and things like that. But, you know, I'm not, like, working, yeah, working from home is not something that I'm like, oh, my God, this is just terrible. I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, I like my house. In some ways, my setup here at the house is better than it was at the office. You know, I've got a bigger screen, better microphone. I can listen to the type of music I want while I'm working. So, like, I do miss some of the socialization of the office. But apart from that, I'm good. Well, I was going to say, like, you strike me as a very big people person. So, like, I don't know how you would do well in isolation. So, it's it's weird. I uh, I think I, I am a people person, but I'm a people person who doesn't like people. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like a comedian. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because I noticed that, like, once we got into the lockdown, I, uh, you know, I wasn't going out as much, and I realized that, I would be out a lot. Like I'd be out maybe two, three nights a week. If it was a good week, I'd be out like Friday, Saturday, you know, doing something. But it was always around performing, like some sort of entertainment. But now that there's no performing or no entertaining, like, oh, well, without performing or entertaining, I would never just find myself at a bar or just out like, you know, just doing something to have drinks. So I realize I'm like my house, man. I'm fine sitting at home, listening to music, drawing, trying to come up with some jokes or or do something different. So, yeah, I think if anything, the people at my office are probably happier than I'm not there, like <laughs> interrupting them and stealing their time. 
Yeah, I think the first couple of weeks that we were in lockdown, I I had like this self-assessment because my life, aside from the shows being gone, it didn't change at all. Like my my social life was just there. And I'm like, yeah, I I probably watched too much like Boy Meets World anyway. So, you know, it's just really sad. Yeah, I was like, I was like, oh man. I'm like, dude, I realized if it wasn't for comedy and entertainment. Like I would only probably be out one week in a month and that'd be like if somebody tricked me, hey, come on, Kenny, let's just go. It's a birthday. Other than that, I'd be at my house doing something. For the first three months, I didn't have a drink of alcohol and I didn't miss it at all. Like I missed the carbonation of soda, but like alcohol, I have no interest in it aside from being at a show. Like I'll have a beer to a show because I feel like I owe it to the bar for letting us perform there. <laughs> that's it. Like, like if, if I ever develop alcoholism, it's going to be because I'm too nice. <laughs> that's funny. But yeah, me too. Like I'll like, if it's a show, I'll usually have a beer just because water goes down too quick and sodas go down too quick. Like if I'm, if I'm going out and I'll be like, Oh, let me get a soda. I have like five sodas or I'll be like, okay, now let me get yeah. some water. I'll end up drinking like three gallons of water. So I have one beer. I'll probably like get three quarters through it and I'll be fine. And then if I want to play drunk on stage, I can play drunk on stage. <laughs> I, I like bringing a beer up there. I will only really bring a beer up on stage if it's going to punctuate a joke. Like, that's it. Like, if I need to raise my glass for emphasis or something. Other than that, I don't care. Like, I'll bring a water up there and I'll forget the water's there. Well, I always like to have something on stage to give me a break. Sometimes, like, I'm like, oh, I need to think about something and yeah. I'll take a sip. And I like to do that to give give me a break. And it was, I don't know, I think, uh, what is it? Yeah, I like the beer because I can, if I'm out like a, for like three hours, I can drink one beer for the whole three hours. And then on, I don't know what happened. It was just one, it was one weird, weird night. I was uh, performing and it was just a crazy night and like just crazy. And so I was on stage and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to play drunk on stage. Uh and so I got up on stage and was like, oh, man, I'm so drunk. I don't know what the hell is going to come out my mouth. And like then I just started saying crazy shit and people rolled with it. So sometimes I keep the the beer on stage just to be like, oh, yeah, I'm drunk. This is my excuse for this crazy shit I'm about to say. So did they try to stop you from getting in your car afterward? No, never. That is something <laughs> I have never. That is something that I've never experienced. The, honestly, uh, what is it? That's one of the funny things about comedy and shows. It's been so many shows I've gone to in these rural, like rural upstate New York, where people are just fucked up. I mean, they're just in there drinking and they're like drinking and just fucked up. And then like after the show, I'm like, wait, how did everybody get home? It's like no Ubers, <laughs> no taxis. They're like, oh, they just drove. I was like, y'all must not have no police out here. And I was like, no, nah, it's only one sheriff's office or something like and that. He, and he's at the show. Yeah. I was like, what the hell? That shit was crazy. So, no, nobody has ever been like, I think you might be too drunk to drive home, comedian. Have you ever performed while drunk? Like, legitimately drunk? No. I don't think I'd have the balls to do it. I, uh... I no, I've I've never done it. Like the first time I got on stage, I was probably the most inebriated I've been. But I'm as a person don't drink. So like I had what was I drinking? Maybe I had like an amaretto sour or something crazy like that. And then I got up on stage. But I found that whenever I'm drunk, 
I slur my speech. It's hard for me to think and focus and concentrate. And I'm not, I'm not as quick with my thoughts as I am like when I'm sober. And recently, I think within the last like five, six years, it's been times where I rely on like older material and things I've done before uh, in, in different shows or things. Now things have come up that relate to something that happened in the past and, and shows. So I like to try to be as lucid as I can to work through some of this stuff. I had, it was one show and I, I only usually drink a beer or two and never liquor. And uh, this comedian gave me a shot of whiskey right before I started to host the show. And it was like 10 minutes before and I had the shot. And then like the next minute, I was like, oh, no, what's my first joke going to be? I forgot. I forgot my whole like I went into this panic mode. So right then and it, my set was fine. Like I recovered. But and it because, you know, I had the drink well before going on stage, but it scared me straight. I'm like, nope, never going to do whiskey, never going to do a shot before a show. Maybe afterward if somebody buys it for me. But that's it. <laughs> I, oh, man, I, uh, I'll, I've, I'll never do shots. Whiskey, hard liquor. I'm just not into it. I also don't like to smoke weed. And get really and get high before shows and I perform. I know some people, some people are comfortable like that, but not me. I'm just like, it was one time I did that and it was crazy because I was just on stage high. Like I couldn't focus. I was like noticing like, oh man. And I'd be like, yo, this shit is funny as hell, but it wasn't funny. I was just high. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I was like, no, 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 no. So I try not to, uh, I try not to use too many recreational drugs before I go on stage. Well, how long have you been doing stand-up? I mean, it's got to be more than a decade, right? No, actually, uh, it's coming 2020. I think this might be my, I'm in my 10th year. Like no 2000, shit. Yeah, I think uh, I came back from Kenya in 2010, and I got on stage, I think, late 2010 or sometime early 2011. So, yeah, I'm coming up on my decade so i think i'm out of my infancy and now i'm starting my toddler years as a comedian <laughs> oh my god if if being in a 10th year is your toddler oh boy <laughs> like i'm not gonna live that long <laughs> <laughs> well you know i uh, i tell folks man hey I, you're like when i see people who are doing comedy and they started like 20 21 22 i'm like dude man this is the sweet spot you uh you have the opportunity to like do it and then 10 years you'll be young and you'll be 10 years better than like most of the other people out here it was just really interesting the way that they talk about comedy and and growth how like after two years you're still sort of a rookie and three years you're you're a rookie and uh they say you don't catch your voice until like seven eight years and yeah it's uh i remember I heard Jim Gaffigan, he was interviewed a long time ago, and he said he never made money doing stand-up until he was in the seventh or eighth year. And obviously, like, I'm sure he made like 20, 30 bucks, 50 bucks here and there, but, you know, real money. But I heard that immediately. I'm like, oh, my God, like, I'm a sports writer. I'm, I've been doing this for 10 years and still haven't made any money. Like there's no hope for me. Like, so I also felt comfortable because it's a lateral move from being sports writer uh, on poverty level to a comedian below poverty level. Like it wasn't that big a jump. <laughs> I, uh, I feel you on that. You know, I, uh, for me, it was, it's interesting. I think I, it's, I'm actually just glad and feel blessed that I have an opportunity to like perform and, and do comedy. It's weird, man. Like comedy sort of found me. 
I had never thought about being a comedian or even really dreamed about this stuff when I was when I was young. I uh, was in college and I was had a screenwriting course and I was talking to my screenwriting professor and like we were talking and something funny happened. He was like, oh, man, that's sort of funny. And he wrote it down. And I was like, man, what are you, a comedian or something? And he was like, yes. I was like, <laughs> I was like, really? And he was like, yeah. And he uh, it's a club in Atlanta, Uptown Comedy Corner. And this was in 1998. Yeah, this was in 1998. And he was like, yeah, you had to come out there for open mic night. And I had no, I didn't know anything about comedy or the comedy scene. He was like, yeah, it's amateur night, open mic. Anybody can come up and get on stage. I went there and like people were like, everybody who got on stage was just like hilarious. I mean, they were just funny. I mean, killed it. Like, and I was like, oh God, like there's no way I could ever do something like this because these guys were great. And I left like two months later, I left the country for 12 years. Jesus. Yeah. Two months after that, I went to Kenya and it was like a year before I came back in like 2009, I was in South Sudan and I was hanging out with, uh, with my intern and everybody we were working, everybody we were working with, we were on the compound and we were just sitting out in the yard talking and whatnot. And he was like, dude, you know, you're, you're funny. And he said, and it's not like what you say, it's just how you say it. He said, some people like you will say the same thing that some other people say. And it's just sort of funny. And I thought about it. And then later on, I was with my in-laws and we were having a little cookout. And I don't know what happened, but I was telling them how I wish that I would want to have a house with a water slide in it. And I'd have like water slide in the walls and whatnot. And people be like, where's Kenny? And like there I'm coming like through the ceiling or the floor waving at people. And uh, I was telling the story. And then my sister-in-law was like, wait. I want you to tell this one. And then somebody was like, no, Kenny, you tell this one. No, Kenny, you tell this one. And like those two things sort of just struck me at the same time. And I was like, wow, you know, people like the stories that I say. And it's sort of funny. Maybe I can do comedy. And I ended up back in in Wilmington, North Carolina in 2010. And I was talking to my mom at the time. And she is a teacher. She's been a teacher all her life. And I thought she was always a teacher just because in the uh, 60s, when she graduated from college, there were a lot, there weren't many opportunities for black women. You don't say. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Especially in the South. Yeah. I thought it was good there. No, no, no. But she told me that ever since she was a little girl, she always knew that she wanted to be a teacher. And she was just sort of glad that she was blessed to be able to do something she loved and she enjoyed her whole life. And so I thought about it. I was like, man, I really wish I felt like that. I had that opportunity. And I thought about comedy and I looked and that same night there was a comedy open mic at a place called the uh, in Wilmington. Dead Crow Comedy is what they call it now. Yeah, or still is. Yeah. Oh, also, they, yeah. Yeah, they call it that now. I forgot what they called it before, but that was the first place I ever went on stage. Very first place I went on stage. Timmy Sherrill's the host, man. Great group of guys down there and or the owner. And I loved it, man. I got on five minutes and I just loved it. I thought I thought I was funny. Uh, people laughed. I was like, this is great. I recorded it. I still have it. I go back and look at it now and it is terrible. I can, I can't even, <laughs> oh my God, I can't even watch it. I feel, I'm like, why did these people even tell me to keep going? Like, why did people encourage me? Because I just, I look back and I'm like, oh my God, it was terrible. But at that time it felt, it really felt good. And 
I can say I haven't stopped being on stage ever since. And I, I was lucky. I had good opportunities. It was an active comedy scene in Raleigh and North Carolina and Wilmington, where I was, and uh, Durham. So it was a lot of people, a lot of opportunities to perform and grow. And it's a guy, it's another guy from Wilmington, North Carolina, who went to the same church that my my family goes to. And he's only like maybe four five, four years older than me. So he was always in a different school than I was. When I was in middle school. He was in high school, stuff like that. But uh, Tone X. And Tone X is a professional comedian. He toured with Monique. And uh, I contacted him. Like, I'd been doing comedy for like two years, maybe two, three years. I'd been getting like good success. Like people been putting me on shows at the uh, the club. I, they let me host the open mic at the club a couple of times. I'd worked from where I wasn't doing two minute sets till I can get a, fi- a 10, 10 minute set at the spot. And uh, I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready for the big time. Uh, yo, let's go. And I called him and I was like, yo, Tone, man, I've been doing comedy. I'm ready. What, what, you know, like two, three years, you know, I'm killing him. I got like 30 minutes. What do I need to do next? And he was like, I just wait another like five, 10 years. Oh shit. (laughs) I thought he was going to say move. No, he said, wait five, 10 years. And he told me something and really stuck with me. He was like, dude, you know, comedy, it's a grind. And he said, do it because you love it and not because you expect anything from it. And he was like, and if you do that, you do it for the love and you keep on doing it as long as you love it. Don't worry. Good, good things and positive things are going to happen for you. But it takes time. So I felt really bad then. I was like, damn, dude, shot me down. But like what he said, I think was really true. And in some ways, like that's been something I hold on to. Uh, as I've been on my on my comedy journey. When did you come up to Ithaca? 2011, I think late 2011. I came up to Ithaca as an accompanying spouse. My uh, my ex-wife and my kids were up here. We were married at the time. And she was in school at Cornell, and that's what brought me up here. And came up to Ithaca, and it was tough starting the whole process of doing comedy again. And was there a scene here? No. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, because like, like in Binghamton, like I moved back from Maryland and, you know, I, I grew up in Binghamton, went away for a while, didn't do comedy in Maryland or Pennsylvania, came back and, you know, I've, I'm always a history guy. So, you know, and everybody talks about who was here before. And from what I've learned, and it could be completely wrong, stand-up wasn't a thing in Binghamton until about around then, like 2012 maybe. And so, you know, it's just kind of weird because there are comedians from here performing places that like they grew up here as a kid, but they're gone. Like nobody stayed around and kind of built a scene. Well, you know, it's in some ways it makes sense because I think historically and even the way uh, a lot of people look at it is, you know, uh, you go to New York City. Like if especially here, like you don't become a comedian in a small town. Like the idea is you go to New York, you go to Hollywood, like you go to Chicago, you go there and that's where you make it. And that's where you're going to be found. So it I think in some ways it makes it makes sense that there's not a whole big comedy scene here. And then or in, in Binghamton. And then like, because New York City is so close, I can see like people just run there all the time. Even now, uh, I know so many com- comedians, especially from Ithaca or the area who've been like, I'm about to go to New York City and, and do my thing. I'm ready for the big time. 
Did you ever have that urge? No. Why not? Uh, well, a couple of things. One, uh, I I started this when I was older. I got I got two kids. Oh yeah. So uh, I'd have to take them with me. My so my son, you know, both were in high school, so I wasn't thinking about like leaving them. And then my approach to it, my approach to comedy is in some ways that here in Ithaca there was really no scene. And so I've got a lot of opportunity here to do comedy, uh, work on my craft, perform, build and grow a fan base. And, you know, the way I looked at it is if I can't be the best comedian and the number one comedian in Ithaca, it's no need for me to go to New York City. Like, And then if there's not a, a scene there's more opportunity for me to do things and create money or make money, create opportunities, shows, stuff like this while I'm here instead of going to New York City and trying to and trying to do something and trying to break in there or compete where everybody else is competing. And then also, I think it might be my approach to comedy or I don't know. It's weird. Like as comedians, I always wondered, are we looking for somebody to hire us. Like, as I think about it, generally we're looking for somebody to hire us. Like, yeah. hey, you know. Yeah, you want to be booked? You want to be signed? You want to do something like that? Right. And so I just started thinking, like, why not book myself? Like, and then, and then also the club that I started doing comedy in warped. It was a tough club. Like, it was an A-list club. And the guy was really focused on business, the business of comedy, more than the art of comedy. Oh, that's it. So when it came to his club, he would say, my club is about the business of comedy. It is not about the art of comedy. He was like, you know, you can be an artist on your own time, but here it's about the business. And it was a guy who used to come to the open mics all the time. And, and get on stage. And the way, and it was weird. The way they do it at the club is for their open mic, they would have a national headliner. Well, not a national headliner. They would have the open, the feature act from the weekend would be the headliner for the open mic night on Wednesday. Oh, okay. So then you would have a host and then maybe three or four other open micers. So like it would be 15, 20 comedians there but it'd be only like four spots. And then the way it worked is like so you get two minute spot, a two minute spot, like a five minute spot and like a, maybe a 15 minute spot. And I remember the guy would tell us, he'd be like, yo. And every it was a, it was an accountant who was not funny. There was an accountant who was not funny and he was dry. But every time he showed up at the open mic, he would get 10 to 15 minutes. Every because time. he knew the guy? No, because every time he came to the open mic, he'd bring like 20, 25 people. Got it. And so, uh, and like the the way the the owner operated, he was like, look, as a comedian, you have to have value. He was like, you know, uh, being funny is an art, but for the business, the value is not you being funny, but how how many people you can bring. Like, how many seats can you fill? He was like, you know, if uh, you're not funny, but every time you come, 25 people come, that's good. If you're funny, but only like two people come to see you, that doesn't help me. And I remember he used to say like, I lose, he say, I lose money on open mic nights. You know, I got to pay my staff. People don't come. Y'all, he was like, comedians don't buy alcohol. You just buy uh, water. 
So he was like, you know, uh, I, I've got to try try to make money. And so for me, I always really approach it like that. Like as a comedian, if I'm going to be asking this dude to hire me, like, and he's going to be like, what's your value? And I'm like, oh, I can't really add any value to your show. So I started thinking about, man, instead of really trying to ask people to hire me, let me see if I can create, if I can just do the work to get the people to the, to my own shows. So instead of me, yeah, I think that's what, that's part of me not trying to go to New York, New York City is like I said, hey, instead of me going down there and asking everybody here, hire me, let me hire myself and try to come out, try to just produce and, and book the own, book my own shows. Well, it's funny because like, like I'm in the same position, kind of like, you know, I run a lot of shows. I don't go to New York City very often, but when we were actually producing shows and, you know, allowed to go out in public, people from New York would call me and then say, hey, do you have a spot? Can we do something? It's like they, they will come to you if you know, if they know you've got a good product. Yeah. So so you don't need to go and audition. They're coming to you and you can audition that way, I guess. That's the interesting thing about producing. Like if you if people like your shows and you have good shows, people will come and they'll be on it. Like the thing that I always found valuable as a comedian, especially in the first like five, six years of performing is not being getting money, but more finding opportunities to perform. Like, you know, for for the first four or five years, six years, like stage time, finding stage time is really important. So I was always hustling and trying to get on, trying to get on stage. Yeah, I remember like maybe maybe the first year I was doing something, maybe not that long, but I was bitter. I was like, well, you know, I'm working hard. I never miss an open mic. I go to the ones in Syracuse and Ithaca and, you know, people aren't coming to get me. And, you know, my mind wasn't going to tell me, hey, you're not funny enough yet. Like my mind was just like, fuck everybody else. They, they're friends. They're, you know, dating the right people. They're doing, you know, everything that I'm not doing. But, you know, I didn't have enough service time. I, I didn't have enough reps and, and I wasn't, the jokes weren't good. But in that, I was like, well, okay, let me start producing a show because nobody can ever not book me on the show I book. So like, <laughs> like it's kind of like cheating the system, but, but in doing that, I was able to see, oh, they're getting booked because they're funny. And they add that value to the show. Six people are going to come and see them just because they're on the show. And it's like, I get it now. And, and it kind of, it, it forced me to kind of see things from a different perspective and relax a little bit and get a little less jaded. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, uh, I think that was me a lot. Cause I was like, man, people ain't going to put me on the shows. And then you also realize that shit shows are limited. It's only so many shows. It's only so many spots. And then in some ways, people do relationship based, you know, people, you know, you're comfortable with, you'll reach out to them. But it's uh, it's been cool, man. I've actually I've enjoyed uh, the process and, and growing in comedy. Like I remember the first time I made 20, the first 20 dollars I made in comedy. Like the first time somebody gave me $20 for like a show, I was yeah. like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And I remember it was like, yo, I'm sorry, it's only $20. I was like, dude, man, I've been performing for like two years for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it was a time where I, uh, <laughs> the, uh, I got into the Port City Comedy Festival uh, in Wilmington and I was in the finals, but I was I was living in Raleigh. It was in Wilmington. I was in the finals. I had enough money to get there, like put gas in my car and get there, but not enough money to get back. 
Oh, shit. So I, I prepared and I took a some some rubber tubing. <laughs> did you actually do it? Yes, I did. <laughs> I That's did. awesome. And and I realized that it you ha- I had to go for an older older model cars because newer model cars had some of them had something where the tube wouldn't go all the way yeah, down. They're wise to the you gas, into the gas tank. Oh, and I swear, I, it's like, it's weird. I'm not proud of it. But like at that moment, like that's what comedy meant to me. I was like, yo, I like it was the f- first time I was in a festival. And then I was like, oh, these people think I'm I'm funny. Let me go down. I was like, I got to do it. So I, I had some place to stay. So I didn't have to worry about lodging or food. I just had to worry about getting there and getting back. So, well, I think that's part of I mean, it's frustrating part. But it's almost part of the fun of being a comedian is that especially, you know, when you're just you're in a small town or you're doing shows in small towns, it's just bad shit's going to happen to your car or whatever. Like you and I did a show at like Star Lake and my car, I think it was Star Lake and my car just shit the bed. And, you know, I have to ride with you and had to go back, uh, you know, the next couple of days and get it. And it's like you just. Something like that is always going to happen. And, you know, I, I don't get down on it. I mean, I've been stabbed before. So, like, like I'm used to bad shit happening. You didn't know that? Well, no. Where were you stabbed? In the side. When? For what? <laughs> uh, I was in Baltimore. Okay, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say, white guy in a, in a black neighborhood in Baltimore. I should have I known. You know, I'm, I, and the joke I have is, like, I was going to get stabbed anyway because I say a lot of stupid shit. But, you know, it just happened to be at that time. But, yeah, it was like uh, 2000 and s- 2007 I got stabbed. So it was a fun time. Did you deserve it? No, this time I didn't. I, okay. There are, many, there are many times I didn't get stabbed and I deserved to get stabbed. Like maybe three seconds ago. <laughs> like, like, but, no, I uh, – okay, this, this podcast is about you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the story. But I was talking to my grandma – at like 11.15, I just got done watching the Mets game. And, you know, I don't know if you know the players, but Armando Benitez was playing for the Giants. I hated him when he was on the Mets. He blew a save. And I'm excited. I called my grandma. And she's like, you know, and she's like my best friend. So we talk all the time. So I called her and she said, well, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm going to go for a walk. She said, and I'm not shitting you. Are you sure it's safe? And I said, yeah. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? And she said, I don't know. Maybe somebody will jump out from behind bushes and scare you. It's like, yeah, whatever. So I walk about 15 minutes and I hear footsteps and I don't want to be that paranoid white guy in a black neighborhood. Like I trust people and I didn't want to, you know, fall into that trap. And I should have because I heard like two sets of footsteps start running and I was like, oh, shit. And I had uh, a cell phone with like raised buttons. It was like the NV. It wasn't the NV touch, but it was something like that. It had raised buttons on the outside. So uh, the guy grabbed my left shoulder and he stabbed me in the ribs or between the ribs. And I uh, turned me around. He said, what's your problem? And I was like, uh, you stabbed me. <laughs> so uh, I, I turned the phone around with my hand and my grandma was on the other line. The phone cut off. So she started like calling my brother-in-law, who's a cop, and started this phone tree. And uh, I, the, the guys and I like wrestled a little bit. We ran up against chain link fence and uh, finally like we, we separated and they went to and I hadn't been I didn't know I was stabbed because, uh, you know, it, it didn't feel like I'd never been stabbed before. I didn't know what it felt like. And they're on one edge of the, uh, the sidewalk and, or the corner and I'm at like 10 feet away. And then I look down and I see a knife coming from one guy's hand. And I'm like, well, that's probably not good. And they said, uh, th- this guy said, give me your cell phone, give me your wallet. And I just said no, because I'm an idiot. And he, uh, instead of like, like they saw, they saw I had uh, uh, my cell phone, but, you know, I said I didn't have a wallet. 
they just took took that as good faith and ran the other way. So I ran the other way and uh, noticed I had I had a, a brand new the band brand new hoodie and I zipped that down and it was just a white shirt full of like blood. So ah! I went to shock. Yeah, I went to shock and the there were uh, these five girls across the street. They were asking, you know, what happened? And I said, I just got stabbed. And they're talking amongst themselves. They're like, he, I think he just said he got stabbed. Somebody said, how do we know he's telling the truth? So like we went back and forth. And finally, I was like, fuck it. Let me die. And one of the girls says, I think he just told us to fuck off. <laughs> I was like, so I'm dead. And finally, the guy who owned the chain link fence, uh, he came out and he said, yeah, I called the hospital uh, police. You got they're coming to get you. So, you know, it was fine. But yeah, I, I got was, stabbed. That was funny. Like, like, how is it? It was weird that like they stabbed you. Then they asked you for your stuff. Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> and my grandma's like, had they done this before? And I was like, yeah, I, it doesn't I, seem I, like I really don't had. know. <laughs> it doesn't seem like they had because like they, they stabbed you and then you folks wrestled. Yeah. It would seem as though like after they stabbed you, you would need to wrestle. No, I would think like, okay, let's grab his shit and then stab him. So, you know, we get rid of a witness or something, you know, like, I don't know. And if they had said, hey, can we please have your wallet? And then I said, no, stab away. Yeah, that's, what, I, that's, what, I'm, yeah. that's what I'm thinking. But you don't just start it out with the stabbing. No, because then where do you go? Yeah, that, but, that's funny. Yeah. And then uh, here's the, the weird part was, uh, or sad part. I was so naive. I'm, I'm 24 years old, I think. And I had... Uh, never done drugs, nothing. And the detective came over to the hospital and he said, what were you doing out there late at night? I was like, I'm talking to my grandma on the phone. He's like, well, we're going to have to check that. And I'm like, okay. And he said, were you buying? And I didn't understand what he said. So he repeated, he said, were you buying? And I said, buying what? He's like, you know, drugs. I was like, no. And like, like I was too adamant. Like, like I remember I, I was getting like a CAT scan and I'm just sitting there thinking for five minutes. I'm like, oh, there's no way he believes me because like I'm, I'm this stupid punk kid, uh, you know, walking around late at night, Baltimore at, at 1130. Like, of course, I'm going for drugs. <laughs> you know, uh, they never believe you. They never believe no, you. No, here's here's the really embarrassing part, though. The cop came over like a couple of days later and he wanted me to do like a, like a lineup. Like they brought they brought photos mm-hmm. of potential, um, you know, criminals, I guess. And <laughs> what they did was they brought out a middle school yearbook. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. He goes, don't worry, don't worry. Like the kids are probably it was probably a gang initiation. But don't worry, because they're probably much older than what they are in these yearbooks. And I'm like, well, that doesn't help. <laughs> so, <laughs> so wait, wait. He actually gave you a middle school middle school yeah. yearbook. Yep. He said, like, <laughs> go through this. I'm like, I'm like, you could not. It couldn't be sadder. So a buddy of mine, a buddy of mine, every once in a while, he's like, hey, run into any infants yet? Any toddlers? Like they giving you shit? <laughs> Yo, that's got. That, that I think that has to be the funniest thing. Where like. In some ways, I want to be like, maybe that's why policing in Baltimore just seems sort of not good because the no, police no. are relying on middle school yearbooks. Yeah. And, and they're all from 1984 for some reason. <laughs> maybe that maybe like that was the year that all the criminals came out of middle school. I don't know. That's weird. There's uh there was a basketball player. Uh, I'm not going to remember his name, I don't think. But he was like, God, it would have been 2000 and. 11, 2010, really good basketball player in a, in a city school in Baltimore. And they nicknamed him the Crime Stopper because 
during that time in Baltimore, crime would stop because all the drug dealers or whomever went to see this guy play. It was like no. a Keel car. I think a Keel car. But yeah, it was like, but that's the coolest nickname I've ever heard. Oh, and that <laughs> that is so funny. Uh, and it's and it's weird because it seems that it could be actually true as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I think they actually looked at the numbers. Like the people at the Baltimore Sun looked at the numbers and saw because I think they gave him the name uh, or uh-huh. one of the writers. I believe so. But yeah, uh, it, it really happened that way. <laughs> or actually, I'd have been like, dude, why don't you just stay in high school and just keep playing ball? Like, why not? Or- or in some ways, you know what's interesting though, Mike, if you think about it, like that says that says a lot about some of the ways that you can uh deal with some problems or crime in the community. Like people wanted shit to do. Like if, right. if <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's like they're like, oh shit, we want to go see this this it's this dude who's nice, local kid, he's really good at black basketball. Let's all go see that. And then when you hear stories about like how street ball was played in like New York City and the Rutgers or what, yeah, Rucker and Park, how, and how a uh, community sort of co- coalesced around it, and in in a large way it was positive. You know what I'm saying? They said even the hoodlums and the drug dealers and whatnot tried to keep that stuff away from like the game, and in some ways, and keep it like you know, but. Like, what if they're like, hey, maybe we should, maybe what we can do is, like, I've always thought this, and this is sort of silly, though. But, you know, uh, are you into soccer? I can pass for it, but I'd be lying. Like, I know the rules, and I covered it. So, but, like, I'm not up to date with anything. Well, do you do you know how like it works in England? Well, like relegation. Yeah, and 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 how they have like five, six different leagues. Yeah, yeah. So like every every town has like a soccer club. Like every town has a soccer club. And in some ways, like I think that could be really cool uh, here. Not around soccer, but like if you have like local club levels basketball teams, sports teams that play like each other. Binghamton probably has a uh, high quality basketball players. Always. Binghamton High School has always had, you know, and it, it's it's a lot more black people in that school too. Like, you know, you try to try to go away from the stereotype, but I think <laughs> I think <laughs> I think black people are far more athletic on average and I think they're funnier. So it's like prove me wrong. Well, I th- I it all depends. I think like if you just look at like white Americans maybe. But like when you go uh look out outside like Europeans be athletic as hell. Oh yeah. And yeah. then and then like fucking Chinese and like people are surprised like it's some athletic Indians out there out of like all billion of them. It's like one Indian Michael Jordan, but like they just haven't <laughs> found basketball yet. Like he's probably someplace jumping over temples someplace, but uh, <laughs> yeah, like I think that I think that would be cool. Like if like then like Binghamton could play the Ithaca team, and then you could have like a lot more community involvement. It would allow people who are you know skilled, like highly skilled in sports and stuff, but maybe not the best five hundred. People like, you know, like yeah, yeah. how many people in the NBA? Yeah. So like you're good, but you're yeah, not one of the one of the best like three hundred people in the world. And you can still like work and produce. So like England has 
like four or five different soccer leagues that's that have like stadiums they have like refs like people working the stadium so it's like an industry that supports a lot of people through a lot of different a lot of different ways and i think like the way we love sports here like if we had way more local club sports teams and like had like those sorts of activities, I think it would be really good for community building and whatnot. Yeah, man. Cause that'd be like, and I remember when I was young, uh, they used to have like local, uh, local football teams, like adult tackle football teams from like different neighborhoods in my hometown and they would like play and then i remember like being young and people just going to support like the local folks doing things they love i think that would be this that's this has nothing to do with comedy but i think no. in so many ways that would be like great for uh building community but but you know what you know what the shitty part is is like those are the first programs that get cut <laughs> and, and then and then we have assholes in charge saying why what do people why don't people do something productive with their free time it's like we tried we tried you took our basketball hoop down like i i don't know if i'm thinking of a movie or something that just happened in the news like for the black lives matter protest like the the counter like the the uh the penalty uh maybe i could completely uh be making this up but I th- I thought I saw somewhere that they took down basketball rims. And I'm like, what's that going to solve? Like, that, all that's going to do is give people two more hours to fuck around. Yeah. <laughs> Idiots. <laughs> oh, man. I swear, like, I, I have no idea what some of these people are doing. It's funny as hell. But, yeah, man, like, I always, I think that would be really, really cool, man. Because I would do that. Like, I would support local sports, man. I didn't know, like, Ithaca has a... A minor league football team or like some like uh, a non-professional football team yeah like a semi-pro team yeah and i went out to like two of the games and it was fun like you know uh nobody was okay so nobody was like barry sanders or doing crazy right. stuff but it was fun like they were playing it was better than like uh, a good high school squad probably not as good as a good college squad but it was entertaining and the quarterback actually made a couple of pretty good throws. Well, and, and you got Cornell right there. So, you know, all those Cornell athletes, they don't just, you know, bail. Like some of them stay in town and work. So if, if somebody's going to play football, like have a scout there, recruit them. And, you know, Cornell's not the best football team, but they're probably good enough to play semi-pro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Most definitely. I think. And then if you had local semi-pro football, basketball, it's it's people in the towns that are good enough to do it. And I think uh, like it'd be good because in some ways that's something that a whole community could get around. You know, uh, Ithaca versus Binghamton, you know, uh, we are all supporting our Ithaca team. You know, it's uh, around building community in, in different ways. I would dig it. Have you noticed like, cause you've been in Ithaca for what, nine years now? Yeah. Do you like doing comedy there? Like, uh, like, like it seemed the first time I ever went there, uh, I know you're thinking about this, uh, but the first time I ever went there, I was told that it's tough because people are very, I'm going to say uptight, but just kind of like very inclusive. So if you're saying something that's counter to that, they're resistant to, you know, like a sexist or, uh, you know, racist type thing. They're kind of a little more guarded. Have you noticed that at all? Well, uh, yes, I will say that I will say that they are more they're yeah way more liberal it's a liberal town they're way more sensitive to anything that is sexist or 
or racist. Uh, that is true. However, like, I don't know. It doesn't, for me, I, well, no, it, that doesn't, that hasn't been a problem for me because I don't think generally my comedy is racist or sexist. I talk about racism. I, I talk about race. I talk about sex. I talk about gender differences, right. but I don't do it in a way I, I do it in a way to talk about the differences and celebrate the differences and the humor in the differences, as opposed to trying to use the differences to denigrate or put somebody down. So that's what I, that's what I find. So it's true. I've seen people whose comedy uh, uh, is at times could be based on a lot of racial stereotypes. So that's something that doesn't go over well in Ithaca. Like a lot of racial stereotypes, unless you're uh, anti-Trump. <laughs> so that is the, the get out of jail free card. Yeah, but but it's weird because like you have you have both. Uh, Ithaca's like liberal, then it's in the middle of a cons- of like conservative counties and conservative people. So you you have both. Like my approach to it is that like with comedy, I think it's always good to be honest. And as long as you're honest, people will not uh, will not argue with honesty and understanding that honest is like factual and then like be factual and then talk talk to your experience around the facts. And then like what I find a lot of times here in Ithaca is my experience around the facts or in upstate New York as a black person, my experience around the same set of facts or things that a lot of white people here interact with are just different. And that's where the humor comes in. Like, yeah, I know like my, my favorite joke now, my favorite joke now is around uh, about the lack of cultural interaction in Ithaca, cultural cross cultural communication in, in Ithaca. So I, I say the joke, the premise is that there are that white people in Ithaca interact more with deer than they do with black people. Right. Right. You know, and it's true. You know, people see deer on the yard, deer in their backyard, in the street, all over the place. And uh, and then talk about that, like how it is for people on both sides. Like, what's it like for me? What's it like for you? And then, uh, so like, that's to me, that's something that's factual. Like people can't be like, no, we interact more with black people than deer. Like they can't say that. And they, right. You know, and, and then when people think about it, they'd be like, oh shit, that is sort of true. And it's just presented in a way that they can laugh at. Like if you, if you tell somebody, look, you are, you really live a segregated lifestyle and you don't deal with black people. He'll be like, fuck that. I'm not racist. I don't live a segregated lifestyle. I have black friends. There are black people I deal with at work, blah, 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 blah. But if you're like, hey, you interact more with deer than with black people, and they'll be like, oh, shit, ha, ha, ha. Damn, <laughs> that's that's true. And then, the, and then you know, then in some ways they can they can think about that or they can be like, wow, I ain't know that. Or But yeah, so... I think in Ithaca, it really it, it really makes you like if your material is based in stereotypes, it's going to be it's going to be tough. I know we've done a bunch of shows together in, uh, you know, a couple in Binghamton, a couple in, uh, you know, a couple in Syracuse or, or uh, Ithaca. But predominantly we go to small towns. Is, is that something you prefer? Uh, uh, no. 
no, no. I think I think if it was up to me, I would only perform in large venues with like 500 people, and then I could make <laughs> <Okay>. more. <laughs> I could make more. <laughs> so you're, make more so you're not happy with the 60 bucks a show? Uh, no, I'm 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 happy with the show, and I'll take the 60 bucks because it's a show. But I wish I was doing better. But, okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, no. It's it's weird. So I think for for the type of comedy I do. And for like my jokes, I actually enjoy going to the rural, the rural towns in in upstate New York because I think that you know that's I, because I think like they would never hear my jokes or they would never hear my experience or they would never hear my outlook on things or if or they wouldn't yeah like and when I say me they wouldn't hear a black voice right to in just in just in in general so. I really like the fact that I can go in these places and talk about my experience of being and living black and how I interact with the world and how the world interacts with me and have people like laugh, have people learn stuff from it and then create like bonds. One of my favorite, like, I'm not sure, were you on, did you host the very first show at the Elks Lodge? in uh, In Binghamton? Yeah. I don't think so. I was on like the second or third show, but we we might be tell the story. We I might have been there. I don't know. It was the it was the very first show I did, and they they found me on Gig Salad, and they're like, "We want looking for a comedian." And the guy said, "Hey, but you know, we think you're funny, but can you like go light on the black stuff, on the race stuff?" And I responded, and I was like, "You know, uh." I just talk about my experiences and I'm black. So that's why it comes off. So I I don't really think it's race stuff or political stuff. And he responded like, oh, I wasn't trying to be offensive or (laughs) anything. He was like, yo, uh, just come on and do it. And Elks Lodge in not even in Binghamton. It's in where is it? Uh, it's right past it. It's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a little, little it starts small. with an H, I think Hillcrest small. or something like that. <laughs> no, nah, not Hillcrest. It, that sounds too nice. Like <laughs> uh, but at what we, I got there, like it's in the boondocks. It's in the, in like the woods and like only black person there, like no black people on the wall. It was just so like rural and not welcoming. And uh, and this was just after the elections, like just after Trump. Oh, like, wow. OK. Yeah, it was right after the election, after Trump won. And uh, I had jokes about the election and, and stuff. And I went on stage and we performed. I did my I did my stuff like halfway through the show. One of the guys was like, man, we want you to be a member here. That's awesome. And, yeah. And they and like he like during during the show, they emailed me. Uh, a membership application. Then afterwards, the guy's like, "Look, man, the uh, just you don't even have to worry about getting a uh, somebody, another member to recommend you. We got yeah, sponsor. you." Yeah, he was like, "Just do it." And like we did the show after the show, like I didn't change anything. I did my ask a black man section, and like we uh we had a really good time. And like afterwards, the dude was like, "Yo, like we we talked about it." And we built relationships from there. Like you said, we like uh, you said you've been there. I've gone there several times. We were about to go back for a show right before uh, 
COVID happened. So yeah, like the idea of of going places and sharing experiences and building relationships is one of the things I think comedy is really good for. Oh, and yeah, well, I think comedy is really good for. So I like going to those places and making those relationships. And so like, and letting letting you see and talk to a black person in real life, like maybe you've only seen them on TV and then <laughs> see in, in, in passing and whatnot. Yeah, so, so I dig that. Oh, shit, though, Mike, there is something I want to tell you that I think is sort of interesting. I was finally, I was waiting for it. Yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've been bored for an hour. Jesus. I've been, I've been trying to think about uh, if comedians, like what, like if comedians were athletes, which athlete would we be like, 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 like are, a, like a sport? No, not like a sport, but like a particular athlete, like, like in, in sports, like maybe, uh, like in entertainment, like the singers, the singers are like, I don't know, like who, like the singers to me are like gymnasts or ice skaters, you know what I'm saying? They're smooth, glamorous, yeah. I think comedian, like if comedians were athletes, we'd be Dennis Rodman. <laughs> just kicking cameramen every once in a while. Just, well, you know, yeah, like, like, Madonna. Like, <laughs> like, do, like we do crazy stuff, but for then attention. We also, yeah. Then we also do the dirty work, like the, the, the rebounds, like oh, we, yeah. we, the hustle, like diving in the crowds when it comes to like really addressing social issues. And and doing dangerous things, it's comedians who are at the forefront. That's a Rodman's a good one. I mean, I think you you're dating yourself a little bit because well, I you am, know, yeah. but like I think yeah because uh, well you look at LeBron and like those guys and you know can go Kaepernick too. Like there are certain people who will actually put themselves in the line of fire for a social cause. You know, I think I don't know if it started with uh, John Stewart. But that's where I went for news because the comedian was going to see things, you know, equally between the left and the right, because all he's doing is looking for the absurdity and both sides of the aisle are going to give that to you all the time. So like, no, you're an idiot, too. Like Biden, Trump, Sanders, whatever. Everybody has their flaws. Granted, some are bigger than others. But I think the comedian is there to point it out. So, yeah, I think like if you went with Rodman, it's like, yeah, like I'm a producer of a show. Well, I have to set up everything. Well, that's a rebound. You know, it's like, I don't get credit. I'm the host of the show. Well, I saved the ball from out of bounds. Michael Jordan scored it. So the headliner could be Michael Jordan. The host could be Dennis Rodman. Like, we're doing dirty work. I think it's <laughs> oh, really cool. It is. I uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, I did this show, So How So You Want to Be an Anti-Racist. So You Think You're an Anti-Racist. So it, it was, I promoted it in Ithaca as a competition uh, uh, where the wokest and whitest of Ithaca were going to show off their anti-racist skills and we were going to crown somebody's Ithaca's best anti-racist. Well, in actuality, it was a scripted show. So it was a contest where we had five contestants, three judges, and set it up like a dunk contest where like you would come out, state your anti-racist thing, then the judge would like give you a score. And so strictly scripted, and what we one of the things we wanted to do was have outtakes like on the singing shows, how you have the singers who are no good, like they tried to make it, but they're no good and they show their video. Yeah. So we wanted to do the same thing. And I had some uh, some local a local movie producer help me like with the event, help me like with the production side of it, finding the people 
And so he said, this is going to be great. So I wrote some outtakes. Like I wrote uh, a bit where uh, a guy is, his his stick is he loves black chicks and he wants to win the contest because if he's Ithaca's best anti-racist, it'll help him with black women. Nice. It was It was another one I wrote where the guy was like, hey, you know, I make art pieces out of driftwood and reclaimed materials, and they are Black Lives Matter signs without the words Black Lives Matters on them. Uh, okay. And I, I make it for the, the silent ally. And he was like, I started doing it for Instagram, but now my pieces are selling for millions. And then he shows him a piece, and it's a driftwood cross. <laughs> And so and then and then I did another one where it's like, uh, what happened? Oh, well, the person said, hey, I am a professor. I'm really into anti-racism. And these are the books I've read. Then I have them list like 15 books. And then at the end, they're like, I basically have a Ph.D. in anti-racism. So the idea was let's send this out to like these actors we work with here in Ithaca. And they will do this. Do you know not one actor agreed? Really? Oh, hell yeah. All of them were like, oh, hell no. We... Just because just because uh, it, it could look bad? Yes. And actually, I think because in some ways, I, I think the one about reading all the anti-racist books, I think that one really hit home with a lot of people. As in, I think there are a lot of people in Ithaca who have read all 15 <laughs> of the anti-racist books. And then I think in some ways, like the ideas, you know, of course we were going over the top with all of this stuff, but I think in some ways, like the ideas really hit home to some people and they're like, we can't do it. And I think they're like, I'm scared that people might not know that I'm not serious or that I don't believe it. So like we were a week in or two weeks in and like, I think 10 People, all the people we asked were like, no, 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 I don't know. That sounds weird. Uh, no, we're not going to do it. But then I was like, hey, why don't we ask a couple of comedians? And dude, so quickly, like the comedians looked at it. They're like, this is hilarious. This is great. You know, this is something that we've got to share with the world. While while the actors was like, oh, this is funny, but it's a little it's a little much. I'm not sure. So I was like, damn, like when it comes, that's why I was like, shit, we're Dennis Robin when it comes to like social issues and really taking a risk. Well, I think like you look at Drew Carey and uh, people like that, like if you go down the list and like the, uh, well, I don't know how deep it goes, but uh, Family Feud hosts, like you got Steve Harvey and Ray Combs, Louis Anderson. Um, I think those are the three comedians, like, like the, the comedians get that hosting job on a game show because, you know, we've hosted before, but- we are able to do, you know, if if you give a shitty answer, a stupid answer on Family Feud, we can kick it back and like make good TV out of it. But like, yeah. I don't know if like uh, John O'Hurley from Seinfeld, uh, he was on Family Feud. I don't know how great he was. And by the way, I know way more about Family Feud hosts than anybody should. But, you know, I'm sure, uh, you know, Louis Anderson was way better at that stuff than John O'Hurley. Yeah, mo most definitely. Most definitely. Ha, that's funny. Uh, we're doing Family Feud next month. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so uh, what I'm, uh, it's this actually, like, it actually went really well. And what I'm, I've been working, trying to use OBS to figure out a way to do something nice with the stream. And we were supposed to do, use it last, last night, but we didn't. But what I'm planning to do every month is do sort of like a game show. 
because game shows can work well online. And even like with Zoom, if you do shit like old 80s, 70s game show, the match game, Hollywood Square, stuff like that, it could work out. But I think we're going to do it, do something once a month and we're going to have it some weird fucked up culturally, like some cultural theme where it's going to be biased against white guys the whole time. So like so like this next show it's going to be a white guy team and then I think it's a team of Asian women. So all the answers are going to be biased or questions are going to be biased towards Asian women. And so the I, the idea behind it is with the family feud they're like okay, we have uh 1000 average Americans or 100 average Americans responses. And generally, it's like white Americans. So we're going to be like, these responses are from 100 average Asian American women. Or now these responses are coming from uh, 100 black American men. So that's what we're going to do for the family feud. And then each month, pick a different game show or something and, and have that sort of tilt where it's always biased towards like the not white guys. And then also, have it fairly scripted, not like heavily scripted, but directed, maybe like so people can improv what they're doing. Right, but so, so you've got an outline. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was on board with it until you said it's anti-white, and I just don't <laughs> think I, I don't think I can participate in this anymore because you know that's not the way this podcast has gone. We, we are we are we we are all white all the time. So well, no, not anti-white. It's just bi- biased, and and I got the idea because we did a show. My wife and I did a show, and in the show, she was like, "All right, I'm going to ask you." Uh, some family feud questions and because she has the home game. And so she pulled it out. And the first question was like, name a movie that every American has seen. And I was like, oh, shit, Fridays. And she was like, nope, not on the list. I was like, what? And I was like, all right. Oh, Menace to Society. Everybody seen Menace (laughs) to Society. And she was like, nope. And I was like, damn. I was like, shit. I was like, oh, it must be a Spike Lee movie then. (laughs) And she was like, no, it's not. I was like, what the hell? Like, what? May I guess? I think it's Wizard of Oz. One of them, yeah. Wizard of Oz was one of them. I think another one was like, It's a Wonderful Life. I've never seen that. Okay, and then Gone with the Wind was actually never seen that either. No, they they say damn in that, and I don't like that. <laughs> but but you, were, what was the first one you said? You were right. That was Wizard of Oz. Yes, the Wizard of Oz was one of them, and I was like, what the hell? I was like, yo, I've seen the Wizard of Oz, but I don't even know these other movies. And like, it was a live stream, and on the the comments, people were like, dude. uh, nobody's seen those movies you're talking about <laughs> spike lee only saw them once <laughs> and then and then like I, it was a black chick who was like dude man uh you need to have a black family feud and maybe you can win on that and i was like oh shit you know that could be like i think it could be done right it could be funny and entertain funny and informative like people can laugh and grow and be like oh shit i didn't know this about black people do you remember the worst show you've ever had? Yes. <laughs> right away? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> no thought <I> was... <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> no, no thought whatsoever. And and the funny thing was, it might not even have been my worst. Like, it was the worst set I've done because of the reception. But I don't think it was my worst jokes by far. 
it was right after the Tiger Woods thing happened. Like when he like with Elon. Yeah, whenever like she caught him like having yeah. sex with all the yeah, and he so, and he crashed into his like yard or whatever. Yep. So that happened, and I came up with a bit about that, right? And I had I was in Raleigh, and in in Raleigh. I would go out like almost six days a week. So it was a, it was a place, a Monday. And I would go to like music mics too. Like if it was open mic, I'd just show up and tell some jokes. So I went out to open mic on Monday, on Tuesday. I went to the comedy club on Wednesday. I went to the other comedy club on Thursday. I went to another comedy club on Friday. And I did the bit every time. Fucking bit killed. It killed. I was tearing up the Raleigh-Durham area. And then... I went to I went to Time Out in Durham. I went to the Black Club in uh, in Durham, and I had been there the week the week before, and it was my first time there, and I'd fucking killed it. Like you know what I'm saying? They was like, "Yeah, we're gonna see if he's funny. Let's hope he's funny." And I did my shit. I did my thing, and they're like, "Oh, yo, uh, like you know, I'm an English major. I like funny. I like clever as well. You know what I'm yeah. saying? I like I also like clever." So I, I had some alliteration in my jokes, you know, uh, putting his putter in a plethora of places. Right. You know? that's, that's hard to do, by the way. I mean, yes. saying it and doing it, but, you know, both. Right, right. You know, it's it's clever, clever. And like I had and the bit fucking killed until I took it to the black, the black club, the black room. I did the shit. It was fucking terrible. It was just terrible. And afterwards, the host came up and she was like, Kenny, I don't know what the hell happened, uh, but when you go back to Raleigh, you need to find the tallest building, go all the way up to the top of it, and jump off. (laughs) But wait, Mike, it gets worse. It gets worse. How? How does that get worse? She said, and now... On your way down, you need to pull out your pistol and shoot yourself (laughs) for coming up here with that bullshit. And I was like, damn. And like, I felt bad. And I felt bad because she didn't even say gun. She said, pull out your pistol. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was a (laughs) stick shooter. She didn't say, grab a gun. She was like, pistol. I was like, damn. But that, that most definitely was like the worst experience that I've had on stage <laughs> so, so uh, are white rooms easier <laughs> i mean they have to be <laughs> oh hell yeah <laughs> like yes 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 oh my god why uh, so but it's it's fun because like all right and the way i the way i interpret it like with the white rooms people are like oh i'm coming here for comedy right. so they expect that you are going to be funny and they're like you tell jokes i'm gonna laugh and so they come prepared to laugh. They have laughs ready for you. They're like, in my in my head, I imagine them at home getting ready, be like, honey, we're gonna have a great time. You know, this guy's gonna be at the club, he's gonna be funny, we're just gonna laugh. <laughs> like they're already laughing on the way to the club, like they're ready. Uh black people, I feel, are waiting for you to prove that you're yeah. funny. Yeah, like, you know, uh, I'm not gonna give you nothing. You're not getting anything from me. Like, I don't know you. I ain't never seen you. You just ain't going to be like, I'm funny. And then I'm going to believe you 
you're going to have to make me laugh. Like, you're going to have to prove to me that you're funny. So uh, that's it. I think I think <laughs> yeah. that's the big that's the big differences. I want to go back because I've asked that question to everybody on the show. I need to go back and listen to them again and rank the shows. And like that, nobody has. I mean, I've, I've talked to 55, 57 people and not one of them has said, yeah, person at the show told me to kill myself twice. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no, no. They, they were like, "Kill yourself once, but just make sure you're very thorough in it. Like, you know, <laughs> shoot yourself while you're on the way from the building. So if the bullet don't kill you, the fall will." Like, <laughs> did you ever do that room again? Yeah. How'd it go the second time? Oh, it went back. Like the that was the second time. Okay. Like the other, like the other times I did it, it went it went better. But it was uh like also. It was an experience that said, that taught me, know your audience. Like, right. know your audience. And at that time, I don't think I could have gone, I don't think I could have taken that material, like the, that material, and done it for the audience. But now, like, when I say, when I think, like, know your audience, to me, it's like, know the approach that you're going to give them the information. Like, you don't really have to change your material, but it might be a different tone just to it that you that you come with so yeah i went back and uh i've gone i went back a couple of times man i uh i always like damn i like black audiences because in some time yeah because there's a freedom and then sometimes there's like certain things that are just understood with uh with black audiences that you can uh that you can do and have fun with i think i said this a while ago not on not on record probably a good thing but i said my and i saw it happen uh we were at spotlight in binghamton and uh you know it's predominantly we not predominantly black room but like you know black owners and yeah. we get more diversity there than most of the other it's places the, around binghamton it's the blackest room <laughs> the blackest absolutely. room that we absolutely have. yeah and uh, but i saw somebody on stage and i don't remember who it was but he told a joke and the black guy in front at the table got up, clapped and danced around the table. And I was like, you know what? That's my new goal. I want to make somebody had that much enthusiasm. If I can do that, I'll never tell a joke again because I don't think you can get higher. <laughs> no, it, uh, no, that, that is so funny. But, you know, in, in some ways, like my, my best experience has also been at a, uh, with like with the black audience, you know, it's weird because I've, I've had so many just really great experiences with comedy and even like the worst, like the worst experience with her saying jump off the building and shoot yourself. Like I can look back at it and laugh. Yeah. And yeah. And it was and it was it wasn't bad. But I'll say like the reception and the the fun and like the freedom. Like, yeah, I do find like it's I have more freedom with uh with black audiences because you know i'm 44 i grew up in the south i'm pretty black you know what i'm saying like i'm <laughs> i'm i'm pretty black you lived in I, kenya for 12 years yeah, yeah yeah but no that's actually not black that's that is not black american because there were not okay, a lot okay. of black americans yeah, yeah so being in a situation where like i'm really comfortable uh in my jokes saying the word nigger if i want to say the word nigger in my me jokes. too <laughs> all right yeah. that's something i shouldn't have said <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, no, no, we've got that, it. That, no, that that was funny. What's going to be funny is like when people hear this, they're going to be like, "Oh shit, is he serious? Does he do that?" 
You don't have people going through your jokes trying to see like what did he say figure or did he say nigger? Like what did he what did he do <laughs> no, then? They'll get to a joke I posted about a Q tip and they're like, Yeah, okay, we're done. Like <laughs> oh, that stupid pun. Yeah. This guy isn't smart enough to get himself canceled. <laughs> so so I love I really like I love the freedom and then talking about it's shared shared experience shared experience as being black in the US, you know, is always something sort of fun. And I don't know, man, black audiences, like you said, the guys clapped and danced around the table. Like, yo, when they give it to you, they really give it to you. Oh, and I was you so can, jealous. And you can and you can just be so free. I used to tell people like the res- the responses after a really good show, like after a really good show. Uh, with an all-white audience, a lot of times people be like, I really enjoyed it. That was funny. You're hilarious. You know, after a really good show uh, with with black people, it's like, nigga, you a fool. You know what I'm saying? You <laughs> damn fool. You silly. Oh, I, you know, uh, it's 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 sort of different. And uh, I don't know, man. Like I had, I, I remember I did a, a one of the first times, like I did like a real like black room, like black room. Uh, Poochie Hammond, he's still doing comedy. He uh, he was the guy who who brought me on and he was like, hey, I've seen you perform and I've seen your material. He was like, check this out. What you should do is go up, talk about the food, talk about the, uh, the club, talk about like what's going on and then throw your material in between. And at the time, I didn't really understand it. But what he was really saying was here, what's really going to be good in this environment is if your material or your jokes could be about a shared experience that everybody's having here. Like, because it was so much going like uh, they were selling bootleg purses like in the front. They were selling bootleg purses in the front. They had uh, they had chicken wings in the back. Uh, the bat like the stage is put someplace weird, where it's right by the bathroom. It was somebody selling raffle tickets. It was a whole bunch of stuff going on. It was in the summer. It was a dude in a fur coat. Like it was in the summer. He had like a white long fur. And I, uh, I remember like I remember listening to Poochie. I was like, all right, I'm gonna do that. And I just went up, and it was like I want to say the best, one of the best experiences. I just had on stage. Like I remember I I got off the stage. I climbed under the stage with the microphone. I'm under the stage telling jokes. People are laughing. It was just really it was really really great. So, uh it's funny like my best experience has been with the all black crowd and my worst experience has been with the all black crowd too. It's a good balance and you're still alive. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate being here. Uh, do you you want to plug anything? Uh, social media, you got the the show? Uh I want to say yo, uh check me out kennethmclaurin.com. Yeah, kennethmclaurin.com. I'm online. I got a webpage. Also, uh I'm Instagram Kenneth McLaurin comedian, Facebook, Kenneth McLaurin comedian. I actually don't fuck with Facebook as much as I used to. What is it when? I don't know if it was Coke or Pepsi. They're like, we're not going to advertise with Facebook. I was like, damn, if they ain't going to do it, I guess I can't either. <laughs> so good. that's a good stance. <laughs> yeah. I was like, shit. If like Coca Cola and Pepsi, if they're like, well, hey, we're going to work on this racism thing and we're not fucking with Facebook, I'm like, damn, well, shit. 
I guess I'm not going to fuck with Facebook for no, advertising like I th- that either. I think what you did was you didn't want to do Facebook anymore and you needed a reason to do it. Like, ah, fuck it. I'll join well, the actually, Coke and Pepsi Club. No, actually, I, a better reason for me not to do Facebook is Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes. Shout out to my guild. What's up, Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes? Oh, that'll uh, be cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, so check me out on Instagram. Uh, September 17th, we've got the Woke as Fox. Uh, game show coming up so all of that stuff's gonna be on my website on the gram i appreciate you uh inviting me on the show mike man it's been fun chopping it up with you no problem man it's good seeing you again yeah do it again anytime man i'm always on the other side of like a zoom call all right man i'll talk to you in a bit all right peace out Peeling back my sunburnt skin I'll wait outside your bedroom I, I hope they let me in